Welcome to 7-Minute Torah, an exploration of the weekly Torah portion with me, Rabbi Micah Streifer. If you enjoy this podcast, please feel free to subscribe or comment or share it with a friend. Hey there, Rabbi Micah Streifer here. As a listener of 7-Minute Torah, I want to invite you to continue the conversation in our new Facebook group. It's a place to talk about the weekly Torah portion or about Judaism and to connect with fellow listeners. Just go to Facebook and search 7-Minute Torah, Listen and Discuss. Then you can join the group and join the conversation. See you there. Welcome, everyone. The Parsha this week is Naso. It's the second portion in the book of Bamidbar, the book of Numbers. And our guest this week is Rabbi Denise Handlarski. Welcome to the program. Hi, thanks for having me on. My pleasure. So we're going to get the opportunity to get to know you later after we talk about the Parsha. But for now, I'll just say that you are a rabbi of the humanistic Jewish movement. And you are the, among other things that you do, you are the rabbi of something called Secular Synagogue, which is an online secular Jewish community, but also a synagogue. Uh, but for now, let's talk about Nassau. Um, This is a very full Torah portion. We have here a census. We have the final preparations for the Mishkan. But you wanted to talk about the strangest and most challenging section, the suspected adulteress and the ceremony of bitter waters. So what made you want to talk about this? I mean, it's a very fascinating chunk of the Torah, and I think because of its complexity and because there are elements to it that sometimes for folks conflict with their idea of what Judaism actually is, uh, they don't want to talk about it. So it's easier to focus on things like tabernacle, like that's something that we can assimilate into our thinking about what it means to be Jewish. But the suspected adulterous piece is not only a deeply sexist part of Torah, which a lot of people like to gloss over, but also um, contains essentially a trial by ordeal, which is not the way we tend to think about the system of Jewish justice. But I think it's a rich narrative and, um, and it's sort of interesting to explore in terms of its legal consequences and also just what it's actually getting at in terms of the role of women. So this woman is suspected of adultery. Her husband suspects her. Yes, her husband has to suspect her. He doesn't have to have a necessarily great reason to suspect her. And so this is where the power dynamic really begins to be uh, laid bare. The reality is that any husband could have his wife go through the process we're about to outline based on any suspicion for any reason. Um, And we could imagine there could be cases of terrible husbands who might invent a suspicion. And the other piece is there is no reverse. This is only something that would apply to a woman. And the process specifically, do you want to tell us what what it sounds like? All right. So essentially, the man is accusing the woman of adultery and her head is laid bare so that there's an aspect of shaming, that there's a kind of literal uncovering and a piece of parchment with the with uh, prayers on it. And it is essentially dissolved into water, which is something I'll come back to. Mm -hmm. And she has to drink this water with the dissolved piece of parchment in it, which is sort of has a kind of magical significance, like it's become a potion. And once she drinks it, if, uh, you know, obviously I don't believe this to be literally what <laughs> is true, but the, what the text says is that if she did commit adultery, 
then it will be physically obvious. Her belly will become distended. So there's a kind of resonance of uh, pregnancy and perhaps the text is indicating that she will then become infertile as a punishment. But mm. it will be physically obvious that she committed adultery. If she didn't commit adultery, then it will become obvious because those physical symptoms won't happen. Which is so, I mean, so the fact is the woman will have still been shamed, brought in front of the community, you know, uncovered, made to drink this weird potion, um, all of that before there's any sense that she has done anything wrong. So this is certainly not an innocent until proven guilty sort of trial. No, the opposite. It's quite the opposite. Exactly. One of the things that makes it strangest is that Judaism actually tends not to rely on trial by ordeal. In fact, the rabbis in the Talmud are very clear that they, they even say, we do not rely on miracles. There's a story about the rabbis arguing over a point of Jewish law and a voice comes down from heaven and says, this is the answer. And the rabbis look right back up at God and say, the Torah is not in heaven. This is for us to decide. So here we have a case of where we are relying on a miracle. It must have been a case where people just wanted so badly to know the answer that they invented or created ritual, rituals in order to solve these problems. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, that other story you referenced is the Ovens of Achnai story, one of my favorite <laughs> Talmudic stories, because Mine too. exactly as you're saying it, you know, my orientation in Judaism is that the people have the power, and here they are yielding that power to something divine. I think I mentioned I would come back to the idea that, you know, there is an inscription on a piece of paper that gets dissolved in the water. And I read a beautiful commentary once, unfortunately, I can't remember who it was, but it was by a feminist rabbi. Um, scholar, and she was talking about how, you know, the objectification that this woman has to go through through this trial by ordeal is essentially, you know, a sin against God, that if we believe that, you know, people were created in God's image, then to make somebody go through this and to have such a deeply shaming process is actually really opposing to what we normally think of how we would treat each other, even if it's a, you know, somebody has done something wrong. We do have other kind of legal ways of approaching it. Mm -hmm. And she makes the point that the writing of uh, God's name on the piece of paper and then the dissolving is a kind of blotting out of God, which is symbolic of what this whole ritual does. So then the Torah maybe is indicating that it in and of itself is ashamed of this process, that this is not indicative in general of how we Jews approach justice and how we approach the world. Right. Which does lead us to a question that is often asked about this, which is like, was this practiced? Is this something that we know right. that Jews actually did to each other? And the answer is no. We don't believe that it was actually followed. And if you read the Talmudic literature on this, there's lots of sexism there. It talks a lot about how the woman should be made to feel ashamed. But it does seem as though uh, they aren't saying that this should be practiced literally. Why do you suppose this is here then? There could be a couple of reasons. One, in lots of biblical literature, they're borrowing stories and traditions from surrounding cultures. So it's possible there was a trial by ordeal sort of ritual that happened around adultery, and it made its way into our biblical text. I don't know, but that's a possibility. The other thing that's possible is that the men, I mean, it, it would have been men writing these texts, not women. And it was a way of scaring. It becomes like a morality tale. Like, this is what's going to happen to you if you commit adultery. And it would be a way to uh, control women 
without actually having to do the ordeal. And it is a little bit reminiscent of something else that's still one-sided in traditional Judaism, which is divorce, that only a man can grant a divorce. So there you have a scenario where women are largely helpless. That's right. And we know stories of men who withhold a get, who withhold divorce, so that women are not able to move on with their lives. They're not able to marry somebody else. And I mean, it's an act of abuse that still goes on. Mm -hmm. So again, if we map that example onto this older story, we could imagine men who would force women to go through this ordeal based on nothing except their own desire to shame the woman and and be able to control her. So it, it is a deeply troubling story. So then what do we do with it? This is in our holy text. I mean, I think there can be a tendency, like we said, to gloss over stuff we don't like. And I think it's better to just name it and deal with it and be, you know, be honest that this is a deeply sexist thing <laughs> that appears in our biblical literature, that these are stories uh, that can be informative. And in this case, what it informs is the fact that we have we were wrong. Our ancestors were wrong about issues of gender. And we can learn from that and we can do better. Um, and we can also look at some of the specifics, like the fact that um, the woman is said to either miscarry or become infertile after this, uh, the kind of shaming elements, the objectification elements, and make sure that in our current practices, because nobody's doing this, but we are doing other things. Um, so looking at those elements and with a critical eye, being like, what will future people say about the things we're doing now? Are we making the mistakes of objectification? Are we, do we have weird attitudes about miscarriage and birth? We do. And, you know, what can we do uh, to make sure that we're um, as just as possible? So much of what we do as Jews with text is to look at previous interpretations and then add to them. And I think that's actually going on in, in a wider way in our society right now. If you look at the Dr. Seuss example, um, but we can still look at those books and realize that even with good intentions, people got it wrong. And so when you look at it through a historical frame, we can track our progress. And I think that can be very useful. So we're doing that with our own Jewish texts as well. We're saying it doesn't mean it's all right. It doesn't mean it's all accurate. It doesn't mean it's all um, a path we should follow, but it can be instructive on how our people have made mistakes and where we want to go so that we no longer make those mistakes. Rabbi Denise Henlarski, thank you for an interesting discussion on a very challenging section of the Torah. Pleasure. And for our listeners, please stick around because there's lots more conversation with Rabbi Denise Henlarski. Okay, so I have some other questions for you. I'm interested in getting to know you, learning about your approach to Judaism, your approach to your work. So first of all, what is humanistic Judaism? How can okay. there be Judaism that is humanistic? Right. So there are a few ways to answer that. So I would call it secular humanistic Judaism. And there are a couple of different streams that I'll briefly, briefly explain. First of all, you probably know about secular Jews. So the kind of secular Zionists, people who were part of uh, secular communist Jewish movements like the Bund or socialist. Um, so there were, you know, a lot of people who came to North America, uh, particularly Eastern European Jews, who identified as staunchly secular, but they were still deeply Jewish. And they created all kinds of structures here, including children's camps and, uh, you know, workers cooperatives and different kinds of um, things to help the those immigrants who are coming to North America. Um, and there are still schools and institutions that they set up that remain active today. So we, there are, you know, a long time of what we would call secular Jews that people probably have some familiarity with. 
the movement of humanistic Judaism itself was um, related, but a little bit different from those other secular Jews. So this was started by a rabbi named Sherwin Wine, who was a reform rabbi. And he realized that not only did he really not believe in the God of the Bible and the words of the prayers he was leading when he would lead prayer services, he thought a lot of his congregants also didn't believe it. And he wanted to create um, a branch of Judaism where you could be fully secular. So it's, it might be what we call cultural Judaism. So instead of saying traditional prayers, he created liturgy that was entirely human centered and earth centered. And, uh, and he created the movement of what we call humanistic Judaism. And so that was, uh, you know, over 50 years ago. And there are many humanistic Jewish congregations around North America, uh, Israel, and a couple in Europe as well. So unlike secular Zionism or, you know, these other forms of secular Judaism that are not religious, correct me if I'm using the wrong terminology, but this is religious Judaism. You're, there's, there are prayers, there are synagogues, there are rituals, right? I wouldn't say it's religious Judaism, um, but I would say that it follows a more congregational structure. So these are institutions that have rabbis, where text study is something that happens, where uh, the look and feel would likely be similar to a reform or reconstructionist congregation, but everything that gets said is fully secular. And there's a lot of historicizing going on. So um, even, I mean, I think you are awesome in, in your rabbinate this way, but I know other reform rabbis who don't historicize the text. They want people to retain their belief. And so they would treat the you know biblical part very differently because they want people to believe that it was inspired by God. They want people to believe what's in the Bible is true. And so this is a different approach where we're able to interrogate everything in tradition. Uh, we leave a lot of it behind, but we keep some of the texts and practices um, that we like and we adapt others. So it's interesting. I think, you know, you and I have had this conversation before in in smaller ways. I, I think in many ways, my congregants and your congregants believe a lot of the same things in terms of the approach to God or approach to what I would term religious life. And we can debate that that term. Right. But we're using the language differently. Right. Reform Judaism has maintained the language of Baruch Atah Adonai. We're praising God, while not necessarily believing in God as a creator, or depending on your beliefs, even necessarily in God as a supernatural being, although there's a whole range of belief within that. But there's a, I think there's an emphasis then on maintaining some of the traditional language while opening up for different possibilities of belief, where in the, in the humanistic movement, there's less concern around actually changing the language. That is, you're not saying Baruch Ata Adonai, right? That's right. So there are a lot of people who find it so difficult to, you know, be in a setting where they're supposed to be connecting to their spiritual self, their kind of highest self, but they're saying words they don't believe. So a big thing that we say in humanistic Judaism is, you know, we say what we believe, we believe what we say. And for that reason, we're, we're not going to pray to a God in whom we don't believe. We're going to change it. So we might say, uh, we bless the world. And uh, we're clear that we are doing the blessing. <laughs> and mm. What we are blessing is things that are... Um, tangible or if they're not tangible they're ephemeral things like love things that we know that we experience um but that don't have a supernatural element interesting and what about secular synagogue this is your initiative so what is it yes so secular synagogue started in 2018 and 
my idea for it was that there, you know, as I mentioned, humanistic Judaism tends to follow a congregational model and across the Jewish world and well beyond in many religions, a lot of folks are less um, attracted to congregational life, but are still looking for community and ways to connect. I was a mom of young kids. So it was very hard for me to get out in an evening to go to a program or service of any kind. And I was like, what if we can do online Judaism, serving the people I serve, secular, cultural, spiritual, but not religious Jews. We have an online community. Now this was in 2018, so no one- Two years before COVID. Two years before COVID, no one had thought, <laughs> or there were there were forms of online Judaism, certainly, but I didn't know of any congregations or communities that were fully online. Now, of course, a lot of people have been doing communal life online for the last year. Um, but the idea was that, you know, this would be a new way of connecting. And what's lovely about it is that because it was designed to be online, we really have a global community. So we're not restricted by geography. So I have members across Canada, the United States and Europe. And for that reason, um, it's amazing because you get to be in community and it really is loving community. People know each other. We care about each other's lives. We share our joys and struggles. Uh, we do Jewish together in all kinds of ways. Um, but in a, so it retains some elements of a congregation and it's quite different from in other ways. Have you found that it's grown over COVID? Are more people seeking it out? Yeah, I mean, I think it would have grown anyway. You know, when I started, I kind of had a three-year plan for growth and we are more or less on track. Uh, it changed in ways I, I wouldn't have anticipated because obviously I didn't know a global pandemic was <laughs> on the horizon. Yeah. Um, so in one sense, a lot of people have more options for online Judaism now, that's for sure. Um, and in another sense, I think a lot of people are looking for something that feels like genuine community as opposed to Judaism by event, right? And so... Um, it's hard to say whether we would have grown at exactly the same rate had there not been a pandemic. We'll never know. But um, but I am optimistic. I, I really believe that we'll continue to grow after most people can return to in-person services and events, because I think now folks are used to the idea that you can do really meaningful community and Judaism online, which might have felt threatening for some before the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Your point about community is really well taken. I think it is easy. And during COVID in particular, there are events every night of the week. If you want lectures, if you want concerts, you can find them every night, but it's not as easy to find genuine relationship and community in a Jewish context. Some synagogues are doing it well. I'm hopeful that we're doing it reasonably well, but it is, as you say, it is not at all easy to find that online. Yeah. And I think that's what a lot of people are struggling with because at the beginning, I mean, I remember when um, COVID first happened and the lockdowns were happening, that first Shabbat you know, it was like, we, it felt like we were like an army of Jews making programs for people to connect to from their homes. There was a real energy to it. It was exciting. Um, and I attended like four Shabbat services and that first Passover, I attended like five seders. Um, just curious to see what people are doing. Cause normally I can't attend a seder in New York and LA at the same time. Um, but that year I could. And now a lot of that energy has softened because I think people are um, now we're seeking something else. We don't only want the aspects of learning and that kind of passive, you know, like they'll do Judaism and I'll watch from my screen. Now I think people are looking for ways that they can participate much more like you would do in a typical congregation where you don't just listen to a lecture, but you join a discussion or you participate in a ritual. 
Um, and I don't know how much of that has felt possible for folks. Um, and it's it's not a criticism if your you know congregation's goal is to serve your community, which typically is a geographical community. It makes sense that that re that remains your focus. But it hasn't been the secular synagogue focus. I always wanted it to be global, and I really care that people form those meaningful communal bonds. And so it's not just events. We do have events, but we're also you know for example. You know, our most recent events have been just go arounds around the situation in Israel, Palestine, where people can just share how they're feeling, what they're thinking, what their concerns are. Um, we don't all agree, but it's very important to me that we listen and we witness each other um, because I think there's so much debating and like fighting. And what would it mean to actually just hold space where we could be in community and acknowledge that there's a lot of pain around this issue and we can form some support there. So that's an example of the kind of communal relationship I'm, I'm trying to create with Secular Synagogue. Yeah, those are the moments where where relationships are are formed, where communities come to be. And um, I, I actually really believe that Judaism sits, rests on community, rests on, on relationship. No matter what else we do, mostly, I think we choose our congregations, we choose our Jewish lives because of the relationships that we find there and because of the sense of connection that we that we find there. Absolutely. And that's why I wanted Secular Synagogue to be online, because while there are humanistic Jewish congregations in some cities, there's certainly a lot of places that don't have that option. So if you're the kind of person for whom it's just not going to work to walk into a place where the prayers are words you don't believe and you can't connect that way, it's very hard to find a community. And I wanted to provide that communal space for those folks. Mm -hmm. Nice. Another thing I wanted to ask you about was your work around intermarriage. Now, I know this is an area that touches your life both personally and professionally, and you wrote a book on it, which is called The A to Z of Intermarriage. So talk to us about your work in that area. Okay, so The A to Z of Intermarriage, thanks for shouting at the book. Um, which is great, <laughs> by the way. Thank you. It's available wherever you buy books. Um, and uh, yeah, so I'm an intermarried rabbi, of which there are uh, a growing number, but certainly most people didn't grow up knowing any intermarried rabbis. And uh, most of the people I serve in my community and also the weddings I officiate are for people who are intermarried or in intercultural diverse partnerships. And it's very important to me that those people have resources. So the book is meant to be a resource guide for them, but also meant to challenge the way Judea Jewish communities have typically spoken about this issue. And um, there's been lots of activity in the last week or so because the newest iteration of the Pew Report on American Jews came out last week, which is once again showing that Jews are more and more intermarrying. The younger you are, if you get married, the more likely you are to be intermarrying. The Pew study only focused on the US, but a 2018 Canadian survey found the same, as well as a Toronto-specific Brandeis survey, which came out very recently. So um, these trends are just, you know, continuing to show that intermarriage is on the rise and that people who intermarry want Jewish community. They raise kids with Jewish identity, which is not what I grew up hearing. I grew up hearing you, you marry out, that once you intermarry, like you're going to be done being Jewish or your kids won't be Jewish. And that's not actually what the stats are showing us. And it's certainly not what's true in the um, experiences of the people I work with and we're in my own life. And so I wanted to really be part of challenging that narrative. I do see the narrative shifting, which is good, uh, but obviously it's uneven. Your community is 
celebratory of all kinds of families, uh, but that's not true in all communities um, across any movement, really. I know some reform communities that are amazing and some that are still quite exclusionary or where people haven't been challenged on their old narratives around intermarriage. Um, so it's not necessarily just by movement, although, of course, you know, in orthodoxy, you're going to be hard pressed to find a very open um, to intermarriage kind of community. But um, but I think there's a lot of work to do in this area. So I do care about it a lot. Yeah, this is an area where I think you and I have some ideas in common as well. And I, I know I started performing intermarriages about maybe four or five years ago. And you and I are in somewhat different places in terms of which weddings we will officiate. I'm performing weddings where the couple's looking essentially for Jewish ritual. You know, a couple comes to me and asks for Jewish ritual. One of them's not not Jewish. I perform the wedding because I'm looking to engage with the couple. I'm looking to have conversations about Judaism and to welcome them. And I think, and, and I think that this recent Pew report bears out that if I say yes and welcome them and engage them, then they are more likely to have the resources and the tools and the wherewithal to raise their children Jewish later, to have a Jewish home, a Jewish life in all kinds of ways later. And so I think there is this narrative that's shifting. It, it, we used to talk about the threat of intermarriage, and now I think there's the opportunity to welcome and engage and build Jewish lives together with the what really ultimately is now the majority of Jewish couples, at least in the U.S., that are um, that are married or of Jewish people that are marrying non-Jewish people. Absolutely. I mean, so I just put a piece in the kind of pop culture Hey Alma um, online publication about how it's not intermarriage itself that has threatened Jewish continuity. It's the way people acted <laughs> to people who were intermarried, their kids, um, et cetera. Because of course, if you can't find a rabbi who will do your wedding, if you can't find a community that will welcome you, if your kid is going to have a hard time at Sunday school, why would you stay connected to Judaism? So we do see a generation of people who largely disconnected. And now that institutions and rabbis are becoming more uh, celebratory of all kinds of couples and families, those people, of course, want to connect. Why would you want to connect with somebody who's rejecting you? Mm -hmm. um, so I think a lot of damage has been done by people who, uh, due to their fears around intermarriage, haven't treated others very well. And I think that if we can relax about what we, you know, the perceived threat of intermarriage and realize that the only threat to Judaism comes from how we do Jewish and how we treat each other, we can be reminded that the way we make sure there's a Jewish future is we do good Judaism and people will want in because it enriches our lives and it makes the world better. How does it affect your rabbinate being intermarried yourself? I mean, it, it doesn't, it doesn't affect my rabbinate, to be honest. I would just say for those who are looking for leadership, Sometimes people ask me, well, you know, how do you do the December holidays? And I said, well, it doesn't matter how I do the December holidays. My job is to help you figure out how you're going to do the December holidays. And that might not be the same as me. But I do think people really like that there are examples of people who choose to become rabbis. So that means like, you know, have Jewishly engaged lives where there's, you know, obviously I've chosen to make it my job and something I do and think about all the time. And so it provides a pathway where you can be intermarried and uh, take Judaism seriously in your life and do lots of Judaism. So I think it's more about modeling. Um, I don't know that it affects my rabbinate particularly. I just think that because I'm intermarried and because of how I talk about intermarriage, a lot of people feel safe joining my community when they might not feel safe joining somewhere else. 
So a couple other questions. You mentioned ritual, Jewish ritual earlier. Is there is there a Jewish ritual that you find personally particularly meaningful? Oh, such a good question. I mean, there are many. Oof. I will say the first thing that comes to mind is doing Shabbat. So, um, of course, I do Shabbat with my community. We don't have weekly Shabbat services, but we do have Shabbat services. Um, but with my family, I really like Friday evenings. And I'll say particularly during the pandemic, this has been really meaningful because time becomes such a blur when every day feels so similar. So um, marking time in that way, taking unplugging seriously, I'm getting better at it, um, doing the blessing. So although we don't do the, you know, Baruchata Adonai type blessings, we do blessings on the candles, the wine and the challah. We go around and say our favorite thing from the week and we have a lovely meal together. Um, and that has been very meaningful for me and my family. The unplugging part also for me is, as you say, something I'm working on. Yes. And it, it's this ancient wisdom. Somebody knew way back when that we needed this. Once a week, we needed to focus on the things that, are, that really matter, on the important stuff. Next question. What's your favorite holiday? Passover. How come? Well, partly because of the ritual, and I really have been learning more about the idea of embodied ritual, that it matters that we don't just say words, but we actually do actions. And there's a lot of that. There's the dipping, and there's the Hillel sandwich, and there's the Afikoman finding. Um, and I think that that's one of the reasons that it's become so meaningful for people. A lot of people say it's their favorite holiday, and that's certainly true for me. Hmm. And I wonder if that actually lends itself to um to internalization if you're actually performing a physical action then you 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 think about it you remember it you feel close to it you sort of build connections around performing that action tastes and smells and things like that over the course of many years yeah absolutely and i mean that that's also um shown in population surveys of jews that one of their earliest memories of doing jewish is a passover seder and i do think it's because it's that embodied ritual Interesting. Uh, all right, last question. What book do we all need to read? Besides yours, of course, which we'll all read. Other than that, what book do we all need to read? What book do we all need to read? Oh my goodness. Like a Jewish book specifically or any book? Yeah. Lots, of... <laughs> Lots of... We'll make it an open question. An open question. I mean, it's becoming my feeling that all books are Jewish books in a certain sense, because as people of the books, I think we can learn a lot from text. And you may not know, I have a PhD in literature besides my Jewish stuff, so I care a lot about reading in books. Um, a book we all should read that comes to mind right now is Bad Feminist by Roxane Gay. I think there's a lot in there for anybody, and I would just recommend that as an amazing book not a particularly jewish book but a book that i would recommend thank you it brings us full circle i think right we started off talking about feminism and we and we end off that way Perfect. so rabbi denise handlarski thank you for your time for your wisdom for sharing a bit of your thoughts with us uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you today it's been wonderful thanks so much thanks for listening to seven minute torah if you enjoyed this program, please leave a review or a comment, and please pass it on to a friend. You can also subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Have a great week.